Go back to the book of Ephesians, and it seems like it's been quite a while since we've been there, but it really, I don't think, has been actually all that long, only two or three weeks. But the last time that we were in the book of Ephesians, you'll remember we began to develop our understanding of the first ten verses of the second chapter of that book. And so to do that, what we did was we stopped and we looked really closely at the first three verses, primarily, of chapter 2. And so as we did that, we were able to see what God has planned for those who are dead in their trespasses and sin. And so we should see this section of the first 10 verses as we come to the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 as one unit. And we want to think of that as just one entire unit from verse 1 through verse 10. But because of time constraints last time, we had to break it into a couple of sections. So just as a refresher to get you up to speed on where we are in chapter 2, I'd like to just read to you the first three verses, if I could do that, of chapter 2. And then we'll move from there into our passage for today. So if you'll just follow along, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So as we began to understand this passage, we discussed what it means to be dead in trespasses. We began to understand what it means to be dead in our sins, and we said that it is to be completely unable to be reached or to respond to the spiritual stimuli of your surroundings. People who are dead, we said, are unable to respond to any form of stimulation at all. And that's the way it is for people who are dead in their sins. That's the way it is for people who are dead in their trespasses. They are unable to respond to any form of spiritual stimulus. They have no interest in the things of the Spirit. They are spiritually dead so that they are unable to respond to. They are unable to recognize spiritual stimulus. On the other hand, these same people who are dead to spiritual things are incredibly sensitive to the desires of their bodies. They are incredibly sensitive to the desires of their minds. We found that they are consumed with the fulfillment of the desires of their body. They are consumed with the desires of their minds. And so they walk through this age, they walk through this world doing exactly what this world does. They walk through this world completely fulfilling the desires. They walk through this world completely fulfilling the passions of their bodies while at the same time they are completely insensitive to spiritual things. That sounds like a good characterization of all of the people of this world, doesn't it? They are alive to the things of their bodies, but they're completely dead to the things of the Spirit. And as such, they're by nature children of wrath, and they are certain to receive the just and sudden payment of the wrath of God. That's what we had learned when we began in the first three verses of chapter 2. So that's just a summary of the plight of mankind. That's the direction that mankind is heading. He is dead in his sins. He is unable to respond to spiritual stimulus. He's alive to the desires of his body. He's alive to the desires of his mind. And as such, he's going to receive eternal punishment. I think this is where man tends to get off track. You see, man recognizes... 
He understands the fact that he's apart from God. He recognizes that he is apart from God. He recognizes that he does not please God. So what he does then is he devises these mechanisms to do that very thing. He understands he does not please God, so he wants to find a way to do that. And so he develops a works-based system, and in his own mind, he can earn his right standing before God, or he can earn a way that he may deserve God's favor. That's his plan. That's what man does. And so he develops the concept of religion. He develops the concept of doing good things to please God. He develops the concept of alms. He, he develops the concept of penance. He will just give his finance to help poor people. Maybe he could just give a little bit more to help out at church. He'll increase his giving to the church for a little while. And maybe God will see how generous he is and God will be really pleased. God will be really impressed after all. He's trying really hard. Or maybe... He can find a way to force God to change his mind by reciting a certain prayer a certain number of times. Maybe man can just give up chocolate. Maybe man can just give up coffee for a little while and and God will see how much he's willing to sacrifice to please him. Maybe he can please God by taking up the cause of God in a holy war against other sinners. Or maybe he thinks that he can please God by serving at the rescue mission or at a prison, and by doing that he can earn God's favor. Maybe he could even earn God's favor by going on a missions trip to Guatemala and by building a house or some bunk beds. Maybe that would earn God's favor. I don't want you to know that's not how salvation works. That's not how it works. And one of the most effective tools of Satan is to perpetuate this lie that man is in right standing before God because he's religious. That is one of the most effective tools of Satan to perpetuate the lie that you are right before God based on the things that you do. In all the pages of Scripture, I can't think of any more clearly defined instruction on the source of salvation than what you're about to study this morning. And so to sum up the first three verses of chapter 2, man has a problem, doesn't he? Man has a problem. You see, he lives to carry out the desires of his body. He lives to carry out the desires of his mind. And he's dead to all spiritual stimulus. And because death is the price of sinfulness, he's awaiting the wrath of God. He's received his trial. He's been found guilty. He's been sentenced, and now he just awaits in a holding area, awaiting the execution of his sentence. That's all he's doing. And verse 3 says he is by nature a child of wrath. And verse 4 says this, But you, who were by nature so generous... You decided to give your money to the poor, but you decided to give your finance to the church and to, and God was really impressed. But you, being such a humble servant, decided to serve the poor and go on a missions trip, but you impressed God so much with your zeal and with your holy wars, but you were so passionate when you recited that prayer, but you, being so clever, but you, being so smart, you finally realized and thought to yourself, hey, wait a minute, I'm dead in my sin. I'm living only to fulfill the desires of my body and my mind. I'm unable to respond to the spiritual stimulus of God. I am going to make myself alive by believing. Isn't that what it says? Isn't that what verse 4 says? But you... 
You did it yourself. And that's what religious systems would tell you. You did it by doing the right thing. You did it by changing your course. You did it by doing more good than bad. You were in big trouble. You were headed for eternal punishment. But you... What does verse 4 say? But God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. But God, can't you just hear God saying to these people, look, it is not your piety, it's my mercy. It is not your generosity, it's my love. It's not you, it's me. Can you imagine? It is not you, it's me, he says. You did not initiate the process. You are not the one who started the whole process. You were dead in your sins. You were completely dead in your trespasses. You were completely unable to detect any form of stimulus. You were completely unable to respond. You had zero capacity to respond to me. And while you were still dead, I intervened. That's what God says. But God, in His great mercy, but God proved His great love for you, but God demonstrated His inconceivable love for you who were dead in sin. What does Romans 5, 8 say? It says, but God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand you didn't do anything? Do you understand that? You did not do anything. You were still dead. You were unable to respond. You were completely unable to respond. You were a corpse when He sent Jesus Christ to die in your place. He sent Jesus Christ to die for you so that in His resurrection you may be alive with Christ. Did you know that? It wasn't you. It was God. But God did this. Christ died for you and made you alive so that you may be sensitive to the stimulation of the Holy Spirit. That's what happened. He made you alive so that you could then be sensitive to the things of the Holy Spirit and you are now alive in Christ so that through the power of the Holy Spirit you now have the capacity to respond to Him. Do you see that? Because He has made you alive in Christ, you now have the ability to receive the stimulus and to respond to it. You, who were once dead, have been made alive in Christ. That's how it works. Some of you may remember back to our study of the book of John when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Remember that the body of Lazarus was dead. It had been decaying for several days. We know that it was stinky. He was completely unable to respond. Lazarus was dead and his body was in decay. He was unable to respond to anyone. But God, but Jesus Christ came to his tomb and he called him out, didn't he? And what happened when Jesus Christ came to the tomb and called him out? We know that Lazarus arose and he walked out of the tomb and he was still wrapped hand and foot and even his face was covered in his grave clothes, weren't they? What were the first words? of Jesus Christ after the resurrection of Lazarus. Do you remember? What did he say? Take the grave clothes off of the man. Take the grave clothes off. You see, Lazarus wasn't dead anymore and he needed to stop looking like he was dead, didn't he? Lazarus wasn't dead anymore and he needed to look like somebody who was alive. Listen to me, friends. One of the problems with the church of the world today is that it is filled with people who claim to be believers. It is filled with people who purport to have been made alive in Christ and they still walk around looking like people who are dead in their trespasses. 
And what I mean by that is that they've heard the message of Jesus Christ. They claim that they believe in Him. But they want to continue to pursue the course of this world, don't they? They want to continue to pursue the course of this cosmos. They want to continue to pursue the course of the present order or the present system. They want to continue to carry out the desires of their body. They want to continue to carry out the desires of their minds. They want to live just like the rest of mankind. They want to take Jesus Christ and they want to add Him. They want to add Him to their already busy and complicated lives. They want to live just like the rest of mankind. But let me ask you, what living person ever decides that he's going to make his home in a tomb in a cemetery? What living person ever decides, I know, I think I'm going to move into a tomb in a cemetery and I'm going to stay there? What healthy human being wants to party and wants to celebrate with a room full of corpses? Aside from the weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> Listen to me, friends. Once you have been made alive in Christ, you cease to have anything in common with dead people. Do you get that? Once you have been made alive in Christ, you no longer have anything in common with people who are dead. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What do you have in common with them? If you are alive in Christ, stop acting like people who are dead in their sins. If you are alive in Christ, stop acting like people who are dead in their trespasses. Paul goes on to say, therefore, come out from among them. Come out from among them and be separate. Don't look like them anymore. Get up and walk out. Come out from among them and be separate. Listen to me. The church that is made alive by Jesus Christ should not look like the rest of the world. Did you hear that? The church that is made alive by Jesus Christ should not look like the rest of the world. The church that has been made alive by Jesus Christ should stand out. They are a special people, according to 1 Peter 2.9. The King James Version calls them a peculiar people. They are different. They're not like everyone else. They are different from everyone else. We don't participate in the things that entertain the rest of the world. We don't participate in the things that entertain those who are dead in their sins and trespasses passes we stand out and people look at us and they mark us as different they mark us as peculiar and i wonder does the rest of the world recognize you as peculiar does the rest of the world recognize you as somebody who stands out does the rest of the world identify you as someone who is not like everyone else not because you're a weirdo but because you don't partner with them in their lawlessness and sin. You don't partner with them in their lawlessness. You don't partner with them in their sin. You don't do the things that they do because you are peculiar. You're different than they are. I am convinced. I think I am going to share that with you. I am convinced that most people who claim to be believers could not be recognized and identified as believers by the people in their own families and their own workplaces because they're not peculiar. They don't look any different than anybody else. 
They do all the same things that the rest of the world does. They do all the same things that the people who are dead in their trespasses and sins do. You see what they're doing? They're walking among them in their grave clothes. They do all of the same things that the rest of the world does. They live in cemeteries wrapped in their grave clothes. They don't behave as people who have been made alive in Christ. They behave as people who are dead in their sins and trespasses, and so nobody can tell the difference. Did you know that? Have you ever met somebody and thought to yourself, there's just something that's a little bit different about that guy. There's something that's different about that guy. He has a certain charisma. There's something that's unique about him. And maybe you didn't know what it was, but then later you found out that it's because he's a believer in Jesus Christ. Have you ever had that experience? I think that it happens. And it wasn't because the guy acted like a weirdo that you thought he was different. It was because he just didn't act like everybody else. He wasn't doing the same things as all the dead people around him. And you recognize that. He had come out. He had separated himself. He had taken off the grave clothes. And that's what the church should look like, my friends. Do you know that? That's what the church should look like. You should not look like the rest of the world. We should be different. We should stand out. We should be peculiar. We should not walk around in the cemeteries with our grave clothes. It's important also that you know that this kind of resurrection into spiritual life doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Verse 5 tells us that He made us alive. God made us alive together with Christ. But, listen, there is a reason, there is a purpose for which God has made us alive together with Christ. Did you know that? There's a purpose. There's a reason that He did that. Take a look at verse 6. And this is a continuation, obviously, from verse 5. And verse 5 says that He's made us alive together with Christ, now verse 6, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Why would God do that? I wonder. Why would He take someone like you? Why would He take someone like me who is dead in his sin and quicken him and make him alive in Christ? Why would God take someone who is a horrible sinner, someone who's a sinner as bad as I am, and take him and give him life and make him alive in Christ? Why would he do that? Why would he take a corpse that had been floating along according to the course of this world, just floating along from the fulfillment of one desire of his body and mind to the fulfillment of another desire of his body and mind? Why would he take somebody like that, raise him up, and give him a seat with Jesus Christ, the Bible says, in the heavenly places? Why would God do that? Why would he do something like that? Why would he take someone like you, why would he take someone like me, hopeless sinners, and raise us up and do that for us? Why would he do that? We'll take a look again at verse 7. It's so that he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness. That's why. He did it for the purpose of showing the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness. I want to introduce you briefly, if I could, to a couple of words here. The first word is the word that's translated grace, and it's the Greek word charis. It's a pretty broad word. The word charis can be used for many things, but I think the best way for us to understand it is to think of it as favor. So God shows us His charis. He shows us His favor. God wants to show us His favor. Now, the second word that I want to introduce you to is the one that's translated kindness here. The word that's translated kindness, and it's the word krestotes. Krestotes. And you find it to be used often to describe mildness or friendliness. Do you hear that? 
Christotes and his mildness or friendliness. It is kindness. So now listen. God has raised you up to life, you who are dead. He's raised you up in Christ. He's elevated you so that his favor and his mildness may be displayed in you. Do you get that? That's the purpose clause. He did it so that his favor and his mildness could be displayed in you. How interesting. When I think about that, and I think of the juxtaposition of his favor and his kindness toward you as it contrasts to verse 3 where he says you were once children of what? Wrath. You were once children of wrath. Wrath is orge. It's passion. It's an anger. It's a passionate wrath. You were once children of His just and passionate anger and wrath. You were an object of that, yet He snatched you away, and rather than pouring out His passionate anger toward you because of your sin, instead, He bathes you and lavishes on you His favor and His friendliness and His kindness. Do you see the juxtaposition? Do you see the contrast? Why would He do that? Why would He do that? Well, let me help you understand that. He did that because you were so good. Right? He did that because you were so pious. He did that because you were just so religious He couldn't turn His back on you. You were just so wonderful because you were so deserving, right? Isn't that why he did it? No, it's not you, it's him. It's so that he can be praised for his kindness. It's so that people can look to him and honor him and glorify him for his charis, for his mercy, for his grace, for his favor, for his kindness. Who but God could take a rotten corpse like me and raise him up to a place of exaltation and usefulness? Who but God could take someone just like you, dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses, and raise you up and exalt you and put you in a place of work and usefulness for the kingdom of God? Who could do that but God? Nobody could do that. Who but God could take an object of wrath? Who but God could take that one who is an object of wrath and adopt him into his family and lavish on him favor and kindness? Who but God could do that? who could be so righteously and passionately angry at sin and at the same time so incomparably benevolent and kind and loving to the sinner. Who but God could do that? And the answer is no one. No one but God could do that. Only God and all of creation, the Bible tells us, can look to God and they can praise Him for His unbelievable favor, for His unbelievable kindness that has made you, a corpse, come alive in Christ. All of creation can declare His greatness and praise Him because you were so good, right? No. Not because of you, because it is not you, it's Him. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved. You get this? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, friends. It's not you. It's Him. Have I made that message clear? It is not you. It's Him. 
Paul's point here is that there is nothing that you have done at all to earn your salvation. There is nothing within you. There is no work that you can do to commend yourself to God. It's not you. It's Him. If in your generosity, if by your good deeds, if in your own cleverness, if in your own intelligence you were able to earn favor with God, listen, you could take credit for it, couldn't you? But as it is, you cannot take credit for it. If you, like the 65% of Americans who believe that they go to heaven because their good outweighs their bad, if that is true, then you are able to take the credit. Because you have done such great work, because you have been so benevolent, because you have been so pious. You should receive the glory for all of your hard work. You should receive all the glory for your self-control, isn't that right? If that were the case, you'd have reason to boast. You'd have reason to stand up and say, hey, look at me. Look at all the great things that I did. It's no wonder God likes me. But I want you to know that you had nothing to do with it. In fact, your only participation was to have faith. And do you know that verse 8 tells us that you didn't even do that on your own? You weren't even able to muster faith on your own, were you? That's right. Even the faith that you exercised to believe was a gift from God, wasn't it? It is a gift from God. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one can boast. Even the faith that you exercised to believe in Him was a gift that was given to you. God gave that to you as a gift. You were not saved because of anything that you did. It's not you. It's Him. He stimulated you with kindness. He stimulated you with mercy. He stimulated you with favor. And then He gave you the gift of faith so that you could believe in Him. Did you know this is a consistent theme all through Scripture? Did you know that? It's not only here. Look what Titus 3.4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Why? Because we did so many good things to commend ourselves to Him. Because our good outweighed our bad, right? No, that's not at all what it says. It says not because of works that you've done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. He saved you according in proportion to His own mercy. As dead and vile as you were in your trespasses, His mercy was proportionate to His love and to His greatness, and He saved you proportionately to that mercy. Did you know that? You're not able to take any credit at all. You get zero credit. It's not you, it's Him. Your works, all of the good things that you've done, they've done absolutely nothing for you. There was no ritual that you performed to make Him save you. There's no ceremony that brought your salvation. You did not do anything at all. It was not works done by you, no matter how righteous or how pious you may believe that you are. It was only according to His own mercy. It was all Him. What does Paul say about your good works? He says they do absolutely nothing for you. In fact, they are just like filthy rags, aren't they? But listen, I want you to understand that there is an important place for your good works. I'm not saying that there's no use for them. But you need to understand this. I want you to listen closely. Your good works do not earn your salvation, but they are proof that you have it. Does that make sense? I want to say that one more time. I want to make sure that you get this. Your good works 
do not earn you salvation, but they are proof that you actually have it. They're proof that you actually have it. You see, people who are saved will naturally produce good works. People who are saved will naturally do good things, just as an apple tree by its nature produces apples. So believers produce good works. The life of the one who has been saved produces good works. That's just how it works. It's a fruit of your salvation. It is not the cause of your salvation. Just remember, friends, you have to have it in the right order. You have to have it in that order. Good works don't provide your salvation. They just prove that you have it. Take a look at verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen. From the very beginning of time, from the very beginning when God spoke your name and said, that one is mine, that one is mine, He had already ordained for you to do good works. Paul says he had prepared them for you beforehand. He knew from the very beginning, he knew from the very beginning which good works you should do. Did you know that? He already knew when he designed you what good works you should do. Now that he has saved you, now that he's given you new life, all you have to do is walk in them. All you have to do is exercise them. All you have to do is produce them. The word that's translated workmanship here is an interesting word when I think of it. It's the word poema. And it's where we get our word poem. And it's something that is made or something that is done. And I want you to think of it this way. You can think of a poema as an invention. Think of it that way. Think of the poema as an invention. And it's sometimes used actually in extra-biblical Greek to, for that very thing. So you can think of it as an invention. I'm going to tell you a little bit. I certainly you already know this. In 1879, Thomas Edison patented a poema. Right? He had an invention. Does anybody know what that was in 1879 that Thomas Edison patented? The light bulb, that's right. And he patented this poema that several other inventors had been messing around with and they were unable to perfect it. But Edison realized that the filament was the problem with all of their efforts. He realized that the filament was the thing that was causing design problems for all the other would-be inventors of the light bulb. And there were many of them. So as Edison worked on his poema, he designed it with a specific purpose in mind. Okay? Think about this. Edison designed his poema with a specific purpose in mind. The filament would need to be very highly electrically resistant. And there would have to be a way to protect that filament from oxygen. So, what he did was Edison decided that he was going to design the light bulb with a particular filament, and then he was going to use a vacuum pump to pack this filament inside a glass cylinder. And then the light bulb, as you know, worked. And it was a great success, wasn't it? And aren't you glad that it was? Now think about this. As he designed the light bulb, Edison knew what he wanted it to do. He didn't design it wondering what the outcome would be. He designed it with the outcome in mind. Do you see this? Edison decided to design the light bulb knowing that it was his poema, it was his invention, and he knew what he wanted his poema to do. He knew what he had designed it to do. It was Edison's plan that he was going to create a light bulb that would emit light. 
The purpose was that it would radiate light. He wanted it to give out as much light as it possibly could. And that's how he designed it. Friends, listen. In the same way, when God invented you, when you were God's poema, he knew what he wanted you to do. He didn't make you wondering what was going to happen to you. He made you with a specific purpose. He knew what he wanted his invention. He knew what he wanted his poema to do. He knew how he wanted you to work. You were designed in a particular way to most effectively accomplish the good works for which He had designed you to do. Your design is different than mine. I can't do the things that you can do. But you have a purpose and you have a design and you belong in the body of Christ. There is a purpose for which you were designed. The exact same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead, the Bible tells us, is the power that He used to create you in Christ to perform the good work for which you have been saved. It is the same power that He used to design you to do the work for which you have been saved. He saved you with your good work in mind. It wasn't an accident. And this is why... It is so tragic to me when believers refuse to leave the cemetery and get rid of the grave clothes. This is why it's so tragic. Because they can't perform the good work that they were invented to perform. They can't, they can't function the way that God had designed them. God designed you, friends, listen closely, He designed you to fulfill a particular purpose. He designed you to perform a particular purpose. And may I encourage you to get into the body and perform the work for which you were designed. Get into the body and remember that you are a poema and you were designed for a particular function. But whatever that work is, know that you can't take credit for it. How about that? Know that you can't take any credit for it at all because it's not you, it's who? It's Him. What light bulb ever bragged about its brilliance? You see, the light bulb manufacturer designs some to be spotlights, and they design others to be nightlights, don't they? They design some to be incredibly brilliant, and they design some to be nightlights to help you find your way to the kitchen late at night. But the point is, that the light shines at whatever capacity it was designed by the manufacturer to shine. Do you get it? Are you with me? It designs at whatever capacity the manufacturer designed it to shine at. And the same is true for you. I want you to know that whatever the work for which God invented you, listen, He's the inventor. He gets the credit for it. It's not you. It's Him. All you have to do is start doing it. All you have to do is start performing it. Whatever He has designed you to do, He gets the credit for it. You just do the work. It's not you, it's Him. He's the inventor. You're the poema. You just need to perform the function for which He designed you. You are His workmanship. You are not a workmanship of your own. None of you designed yourselves. None of you can brag about the function that He designed you to perform. All you can do is submit to Him and do the work that He gave you to do. So I want to ask you, are you walking around with grave clothes on, first of all? Can the rest of the world tell 
that you're peculiar? Can the rest of the world tell that you're different? And are you actually doing the work for which he's designed you? Are you doing what he's asked you to do? Are you just go? Put a check mark in the box saying, I went to church this week. Go home and look just like the rest of the world, Monday through Saturday. Come back on Sunday, try and take off as many grave clothes as you can to make it look like you're doing the function God designed you to do. And then go right back to it on Monday. Is that what you do? Or do you do the work for which He designed you? Father, I thank You that even while we were dead in our trespasses and dead in our sins, Your great mercy and Your great love, You made us alive in Jesus Christ. And I thank You that You gave us the gift of faith, that we could believe in the work of Jesus Christ, that we could be saved. I thank You that in Your grace and in Your kindness and Your favor and Your goodness to us that You raised us up and that You made us Your handiwork that we can accomplish the work for which You invented us. Lord, I just pray that You would let those of us here at Root River Church live like people who have been made alive in Christ. I pray that You would help us to live like people who know the purpose for which they've been designed. Let us not look like the world, but God, let us stand out. Let us be peculiar. Let us be different. And let us shine as a brilliant light, we pray, to the city of Franklin, to Your glory and to Your honor, because You deserve all the credit. In Christ's name, amen.